the blessings he wants us to enjoy. Open your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 26, and we will begin reading in verse 26 in just a little bit, but let me say a few words by way of introduction. As you know, we're talking about the elements of the Lord's Supper tonight, and it's easy to see that there are only two elements, but that doesn't mean that everybody agrees on what uh, what they are or what they mean. The late Dr. M. R. Dehan, a man that I respected and appreciated his ministry in a lot of ways, was not right about everything, and he certainly was not right when he claimed that a banana and water could properly be used. That is not true. Others have said that it would be fine to observe the Lord's Supper with uh, potato chips and Coke. And, and again, that's not true. You know, having an idea about what would be suitable in the sight of God is one thing. Being right about it is something entirely different. And uh, we want to be right about it. And I think everyone realizes that there is a great deal of controversy about this subject and the purpose of the message is for us to try our best to see what the Bible says about it and, uh, and not be confused. Some of the confusion comes as a result of the teaching of the Roman Catholics, which is called transubstantiation, which they say that the bread and the wine actually becomes the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. I could read you the quote from their own material, and I'm not going to take time to, to do that, but I have jotted it down here so I would have that information. But they say the conversion, the thing that changes the, you know, the literal wine and the literal bread into the literal flesh and blood of Christ, they say, is by the Holy Catholic Church. They have the power to do that. I think they're lying. I'll just leave it at that. Amen. Some of the Protestants, Lutherans and Anglicans and, uh, and I'm sure some others, they have a different view called consubstantiation, and uh, they claim that the literal body and blood of Christ is is in those elements. Uh, it's not something that has changed, but there is some particle of it within the elements themselves. It's not something that is imparted to it, but something that is already there. You, you know, all of this confusion that we've been talking about arises from this mistake and that is in trying to force a literal interpretation in the Bible where it's very obvious that the Lord is using symbols and metaphors and they're trying to force a literal interpretation into that. You know, people say, well, don't you believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible? Well, I certainly do, but you have to take into account that the Bible uses metaphors and, and symbols. For example, when it talks about Jesus being uh, the, the water of life or, or the bread of life, or when it talks about him being a door, 
you know, we all know that's not literal, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious he's not a door in the sense of being a literal door. He's not a loaf of bread or anything like that. We know that those are symbols designed for the purpose of imparting spiritual truth to us. And so when we come to the New Testament, we find that it's very clear that the bread represents the body of Christ, whereas the fruit of the vine represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even have to wonder about that. So we're going to talk about those two elements tonight. And first of all, the bread, if you look in verse number 26, and it says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, Although it is not specifically stated here, uh, we have reason to believe that this is uh, unleavened bread. And I say that because we have to keep in mind the fact that whenever he assembled with his disciples, it was there to, they were there to observe the Passover. And that did require unleavened bread, according to Exodus chapter 13 and verse number 7. So when we observe the Lord's Supper and we partake of the bread, that bread is representing the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that it was unleavened could speak of his sinlessness, and the fact that it was broken, of course, speaks about his body, his suffering on the cross on Calvary. And as we partake of it, it reminds us of what is said in John 6, verse 48, that he is the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Nothing could be any clearer than that. He tells us the bread is representing his flesh and that his flesh was sacrificed in, in order that you and I might be delivered from the flesh. Thank God for that. Whenever we come to the Lord's table and we partake of that bread, we need to have a picture in our mind, as it were, of our suffering Savior on the cross, his body bruised and bleeding and broken there as he hangs on the cross for us. The bread is the body of Christ. The second element is the fruit of the vine, Matthew 26, verse 27 and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, as you know, this is the most controversial part of the Lord's Supper, the identity of the liquid that is in the cup. This is where the hang-up is. This is where the, uh, the, the, the contention exists between a lot of preachers and a lot of churches. Uh, the fact of the matter is, you can search your Bible all you want, and you'll never find the word wine used in reference to the Lord's Supper. And, and and by the way, if it if it was used in reference to it, that would not mean that it is fermented wine. Both the Hebrew word and the Greek word that's translated wine are generic words. That is, they 
they designate the fruit of the vine, the juice of the grape, in whatever stage it is in. It doesn't make any difference. You're just talking about the product of the grape. Now, I certainly don't want to be contentious. I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to try to belittle anyone. I don't want to make any smart remarks that I would regret later and that would be offensive to others. My only goal is to try to my best to discover the truth and to know exactly what the element, proper element, is for the Lord's Supper. Uh, in doing this, I want to I want to consider the objections that others use, and there are at least six. And naturally, we don't have time to do an exhaustive study on each and every one of these. But I want to be I want to be fair enough to give you the objections they use to us using grape juice. By the way, whenever I whenever I say this, and I talk about this controversy. Uh, whenever I, whenever we moved here 29 years ago, 20, what, 20, whatever it was, 16, yeah, 29 years ago, uh, other, other than, uh, other than a spattering of churches in Tennessee and Kentucky and some area, and I'm sure there were others, uh, I, I, I'd never lived in an area or knew of an area that had, uh, such a nest of Baptist, uh, that, that actually used an alcoholic beverage in the Lord's Supper. Uh, let me tell you, if you think if you think it's everywhere like it is around Houston, you are sadly mistaken. It is not that way at all. This is a whole new ball game, something entirely different from anywhere else in in, in the United States. And so, I don't want somebody to try to convince you that this is the way it is everywhere. But anyway, whenever we moved here, all of a sudden I realized that, I'm not going to say the majority, but a large, large number of churches in this area embraced the idea that fermented wine was the proper element for the Lord's Supper. I knew many of those men, or I know many of those men, and respected them very much. I preached in some of their churches uh, they preached in our conferences and things of that nature. We've never made it a bone of contention. We've had no personal falling out, but but we do disagree, and I want that to be understood. You know, a lot of times people, you, you know, they consider you guilty by association, that if you associate with somebody that believes something different, you, know, you either compromise or whatever. Well, I understand you've got to draw the line somewhere, but I don't think that's a good place to draw the line on Christian fellowship. I think we can disagree on some things without, without you know, getting all bent out of shape about it. But by the same token... I think we ought to state our position and stand on it, and that's what that's what I chose to do uh, a long, long time ago. So let's consider these six objections that they use. Number one, they say there's leaven in the grape juice, and therefore it must be purged out by fermentation. So they claim that fermentation purifies. I contend that it putrefies doesn't purify anything and they point out that the grape juice contains a certain amount of leaven what about the fermented wine it's nothing but leaven 
It, it's all leaven. So to me, that doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, in fact, it, it, there's been instances where they actually used an amount of fermented wine in order to in order to hasten the process of fermentation in grape juice. And so, you know, that tells you something. Good friend of mine, Brother Davis Huckabee, who uh, wrote on this subject, said the only, now listen carefully to what he says, the only symbolism required by the phrase, the fruit of the vine, is that of being crushed so that the juice might be poured out. The purity of the Lord is symbolized by the unleavened bread, but the scripture is silent as to the fruit of the vine ever symbolizing the purity of Christ's blood. And we go beyond what is written if we insist upon this. Did you get that? Because you probably never heard it before in most places. He is simply saying the unleavened bread is indeed an apt picture of the sinlessness of Christ, but you search in vain to find a scripture that says that the fruit of the vine represents the the purity and sinlessness of the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I mean, it's not there. You're saying something that's not stated. You can say that it's implied or whatever, but there's a big difference in saying, well, you know, in, in, in my mind, it is at least implied. That's one thing, but, uh, but to say this is absolutely the way that it must be, you're saying something the Bible does not say. So, as far as that argument is concerned, I, I think we ought to stick with the fruit of the vine, the product of the vine rather than the product of man. Their second objection is, and I'm quoting from what I've read and what I've heard in order to get this accurate and uh, as to what they believe and what they've said, quote, the word wine always speaks of that which is fermented. That is absolutely not true. As I said earlier, the Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word and there's a Greek word, both designating uh, the juice of the grape in all stages. Now, keep in mind, I said in all stages. In other words, that same word can be used of an intoxicating drink. It can. And to determine whether or not it's speaking about the pure blood of the grape that is unfermented or whether it's speaking about grape juice that has been fermented, you have to determine that by the context. And, and by the way, as you're reading through the Bible and you see the various instances where the word wine is used, uh, there are some instances where very, it's very obvious that it's speaking about something that is fermented and causing intoxication and brings about violence and brings about destruction. But in other cases, the word wine is used in, in, in the sense that it brings about uh, uh, special blessings and privileges and so forth. And in other words, it's something that's good for us and something that is a blessing to us. And so anyone who uh, claims the idea that there's, you know, that, that about the two different kinds of wine, and it always has to be what they say, affirming the beverage, is just simply not true. Number three, they say grape juice could not be preserved apart from fermentation. Now, in, in a book by William Patton called The Bible, Wines, and the Laws of Fermentation, and I'm 
I just refer to this, and I've had a copy of that book for many, many years. My good friend M.L. Moser used to take that to every conference that he went to and distributed it widely among the Baptists. And I'll tell you now, in fact, I just read a little review just this last week of someone who adamantly disagrees with the conclusions of this man, but that doesn't make them right. And if you read the book, you'll find that he demonstrates in several different ways and mentions ways in which grape juice could be preserved without fermentation, and he has documentation for those claims. But anyway, that's their, their claim that you cannot preserve grape juice apart from fermenting it. Number four, the Corinthians got drunk in their observance at the Lord's Supper. And therefore, the element must have been fermented. Number one, even if that is true, that wouldn't make it right. I mean, let, let's just suppose they, they did get drunk. Let's suppose that they were using a, a fermented, uh, a, a fermented uh, wine. Does that make it right? Absolutely not, because whenever Paul is dealing with them, he's dealing with, that, with the problems that existed there. He's not putting his stamp of approval up on that. And so if they were using it, it doesn't mean they were justified in doing so. The fact of the matter is there's nothing there to indicate that, that, that these people were intoxicated. And all of that is based on the word drunken, that some were drunken before others came. And the meaning of that word, the Greek word that is used there, is a word that means to be filled. Remember, they had been eating. They had turned the Lord's table into some sort of a, in some sort of a fellowship feast and, and, and even refused to wait on the others. And some had already eaten. Some had already drunk. And I use that word drunk in the sense that they had partaken of it. It does not mean, does not mean that they were inebriated. It's talking about being satiated or filled uh, already. And so that, that's, you know, that's the whole point of that. So it's certainly, uh, I wouldn't think wise to use them as an example of why a person ought to use fermented wine. Number five, well, boy, you've heard this one a lot of times, haven't you? Jesus turned water into fermented wine, and therefore we should use it as an element of the Lord's Supper. Well, we could we could spend a lot of time dealing with that, and and I'm not going to get off on all of the details concerning that. And I would like to think that nobody here really believes that he actually turned that uh, you know the the water into literal fermented wine on that day. And so I don't think that's an issue here, and it certainly shouldn't be an issue. Uh, if you're over 50, 60 years of old, you ought to be familiar with a fellow of the name of Sam Morris. Sam Morris was the executive director of the National Temperance League, and if ever a man raised a storm across Texas, it was uh, old Sam Morris. He was hated and despised because he fought against whiskey and, and liquor in, in every form for years and years. And uh, many years ago, I jotted down a quote that he uh, made, and I want to read that to you. Jesus never contradicted the old scripture. He always 
affirmed, upheld, and magnified it. In fact, he said, one jot or one little, uh, one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He said, I am not come to destroy. All right. Now let's see where we get. The Old Testament very plainly said, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Now, if you say because the word honest is the the Greek word for wine or grape juice is permitted, uh, if being intoxicating wine, if you say, well, that means he turned it into intoxicating wine, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ pulling the curse of Almighty God down on his own head. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. If you say it means intoxicating wine, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ utterly ignoring the plain, emphatic warning of the Old Testament. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, and at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Am I right about it? If you say that is an intoxicating wine simply because the Greek word honest would permit uh, that interpretation, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ denying, abrogating, and destroying the plain, unvarnished admonition, look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Such a position is wholly untenable, and I will stand anywhere before any group anywhere on the top side of God's earth and say, no, sir, my Lord did not turn water into intoxicating wine, and the Bible does not teach that he did. And, and I'm just going to say, amen, I, I agree exactly with what he said there. That's the conclusion that I come to. I cannot believe for one minute that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would ignore the plain warnings and commands in regards to fermented beverages. Now, number six, they say, since Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover, he must have used fermented wine. Well, for your information, whether you realize it or not, uh, fermented wine was never by scriptural demand a part of the Passover celebration. God never insisted on that. Now, you said, well, I've had historical records that prove that the Jews used fermented wine in the observance of the Passover. All right, that's not a scriptural command. There's no command that says they had to use that if they did use that or if in some cases some of them used that. So uh, I think we can sum all of this up, and at least in my mind, make it really easy when we look here in the New Testament and see as Jesus is speaking about the element in the cup. Notice he called it the fruit of the vine. Now, he could have used the word wine properly there. He could have, but he didn't, did he? There must have been some reason, don't you think? I mean, he certainly knew that that was going to gender strife, uh, evidently, because he doesn't use the word there. He says it's the fruit of the vine, and uh, the product of the vine is never alcoholic. I mean, can you imagine getting stopped by a cop out here and you're drunk as a skunk and he says, what have you been drinking? Oh, I haven't been drinking anything. I just ate a lot of grapes. I was shopping at Kroger and stealing grapes, you know. I ate a bunch of grapes and it made me drunk, you know. Grapes are not going to 
not going to make you drunk. There's no intoxicating power in the fruit of the vine as it comes. Fermentation is the work of man. That's not, that's not the natural product. This is something that man does. Now, let's suppose for a minute, just for argument's sake, that fermented wine could properly be called the fruit of the vine. That, that's, now, understand, that's, that's not true, but let's, let's say that it is. So now we've got a choice. On the one hand, we can use that which is fermented. On the other hand, we can use that which is uh, the pure fruit of the vine, the blood of the grape, grape juice. 100% grape juice. Now, we've got this option. Why in the world would we choose that which is fermented over that which is the pure product of the vine that's not fermented? I mean, if it's permissible, why in the world would we not choose the one that that cannot in any way uh, get a person inebriated? I don't know if you've ever been around alcoholics much or not, but let me tell you the very smell of it is almost and can be more than enough to trigger a relapse in their life. For the life of me, I just cannot imagine why anyone would reason that it's okay, and because this is what a lot of them say. Now, there's a, there's a few of them that say, I mean, they're so adamant against us, they say it's never right, never proper to ever use grape juice. They claim that we're totally in the wrong, that we, can't, we cannot even properly observe the Lord's Supper if we're using grape juice. You know, that's their belief. But for right now, we're just supposing we can use e- either one. So why would we use something? By the way, why would we serve it to children? And number two, why would we use something that might trigger... Uh, a problem in the life of a recovering alcoholic. Why wouldn't we use the pure blood of the grape, grape juice, and be blameless? I mean, how how can any evil come from using the grape juice? And we can all see how evil can come from the other. Now, Whenever we talk about being blameless, and boy, that opens up a whole list of things that we could talk about in those what we sometimes call gray areas. Isn't it amazing that we get so concerned about, you know, can we do this or can we do that instead of just taking the, the course that removes those question marks? That, that's the way that we, we ought to be living, to be blameless before others. And many of you have heard me say this, so I'm going to say it and hope I never confuse any of our young people by saying it. To this very day, there's no liquid that tastes better to me than beer. I acquired a taste. As of a time in my life when I was 10, 11, 12, I hated the taste of it. By the time I was 13, I acquired a taste for it and it's never gone away. I, 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 I love it. At our next fellowship meeting, I could bring some O'Doul's, that's non-alcoholic beer. Do you suppose that would at least, uh, you know, cause some people to 
have some questions about my sincerity or whatever and put a question mark in the minds of people? Well, it would. That's why I'm not going to bring any. Being blameless, somebody says, well, you know, I, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm not going to hide it. We, we hit that lick here a few weeks ago. Does that make you some kind of a spiritual giant because you decide you're going to sin openly instead of privately? I mean, and if you, if you're, you know, if you're just dead set on sinning, at least do it in private. But listen, even in regards to those sinless things, this is the point I'm trying to make. Sinless things can become sinful when they become a stumbling block to somebody else. The important issue is not whether or not you have a right to do it. The important thing is what effect will your actions have on other people. Now, with all of that being said, let me just sum it up talking, trying to ascertain the the meaning of it. And and the meaning of it is evident. Listen to what the Lord said. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. You know, you say we can get to spend all of this time arguing about these uh, elements and, and, and so forth, and I'm not saying they're not important. They are. But we can spend so much time discussing and debating those things that we miss the important thing, and that is that the fruit of the vine represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and that takes us all of the way back to the Garden of Eden where there we find an instance of the Lord Himself taking the coats of skin and providing a covering for their nakedness. And we see throughout the Old Testament all of the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices that were offered, all of them picturing the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Wouldn't that be a terrible place to be in? No remission. Sinners with no possibility for the remission of their sins. Although we are sinful, vile, filthy human beings, although there's absolutely no reason on our part for God to love us and to provide salvation, He loved us in that while we were yet sinners. Amen? While we were yet sinners. Think about that that Christ died for us. And Peter said, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition uh, from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without blemish and spot. And whenever we partake of the Lord's table, we are reminded of the great sacrifice that He made for us. Thank God that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin. You see, more important than you and I trying to debate the elements of the Lord's Supper uh, is the fact that we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about it. You can win the argument. In fact, let me say this. You can even be right in your argument, whatever your position is. 
You can be 100% right and die and go to hell if you haven't been born again. And so many times we get so concerned about winning our arguments, winning the debates, that we forget about what is really important. And I'm afraid, and again, I'm not saying the elements are unimportant. I hope I've made that clear. They're very important, but they are of secondary importance compared to what the Bible teaches about salvation. You'd be baptized every week. Or as we used to say in the country, you'd be baptized in the creek till every tadpole in the creek, you know, knew you, knew you by name. And, and that wouldn't do you any good. That, that's, that's not going to save you. And you can be right about your conclusion regarding the elements of the Lord's Supper, but if you're not born again, uh, it's not going to help you. Let's keep the emphasis where it really needs to be as we think about the fruit of the vine and we think about the bread and it being the body of Christ and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for us, that was sacrificed for us. And those that deserve absolutely nothing. Think about that as God looks down from His heaven upon sinful man sees us totally undeserving of anything whatsoever. And what does he do? He sends heaven's very best. God himself wrapped himself in a robe of flesh and condescended down from heaven, took upon himself the form of a man and walked here upon this earth and sacrificed his life that we might be saved. I'm so glad that we can have a relationship with God, our Creator, because Jesus Christ cared enough to shed His blood for our sins that we can become a joint heir with Him and a child of God. Let's all stand together. Father, how we thank You tonight for what You have provided through the sacrifice of Your own dear Son. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that not just at the Lord's table, but each and every day of our life, that we might be mindful of the greatness of the sacrifice that you made, that we, that we might live in the awareness that you gave heaven's very best for the most sinful, vile, filthy human beings on the face of the earth. And we thank you for loving us and giving yourself for our sins. And Lord, tonight, if there's a, a man, woman, some boy or girl, anyone here that's never received Christ as their Savior, Lord, they might be able to quote a hundred Bible verses. It might be that they are knowledgeable about your word. It might be that they're active in Christian service, but they've never really truly been born again. And I pray tonight that they would trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and know the joy of having their sins forgiven and their home in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. While we stand